Hello, and welcome to episode two of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. Today, we're going to talk about Oliver Otis Howard. Why did I pick Howard? Well, because he founded two universities. Also, because to me, he personifies the victories and tragedies of not only the Civil War, but also the American experience through uh, Reconstruction and later the Indian Wars. As a general in the U- U.S. Army, people didn't know how to take him. Some found him alternative, alternatively weird, hyper-religious, flawed, brilliant. He became one of the most successful Union generals of the war who suffered two bitter defeats. He received degrees at two colleges before the war and founded two universities after the war. He ran an organization that made education available to tens of millions in the South for the very first time and spawned dozens of colleges across America. His military career, like the rest of his life, veered from high light to low light. He won the Congressional Medal of Honor for leading the charge at the Battle of Fair Oaks, or Seven Pines, which cost him his right arm. But he suffered ignominious defeats. In fact, as a play on the first two initials of his name, his men sometimes called him Uh Uh-Oh Howard. But when the country ran into some of its biggest problems, it it called on Howard to fix them. He befriended Cochise. He corresponded with Mark Twain, Frederick Douglass, and Booker T. Washington. He lent money to Sojourner Truth. He received two mandates from Abraham Lincoln and carried them both out after Lincoln's death. He became religious to the extreme, and depending on your perspective, you considered him either very pious or very self-righteous. Sherman complained about his overt piety and swore in front of him just to embarrass him. He's the only general I know of who wrote children's books after the war later in life. Howard was an ardent abolitionist before the war, which is rare for Union officers, and Howard's post-war days were spent looking after the welfare of the recently emancipated slaves. Okay, so we're going to skip forward to the Freedmen's Bureau because I'd like to talk about that first. So after the war was over, in May of 1865, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton offered to Howard the position of superintendent of the Bureau of Freedmen's Affairs. Stanton made it clear that the offer was the wish of late President Abraham Lincoln. He agreed to the position, Howard did, and saw this as as honoring one of Lincoln's two mandates that he made before his assassination. Officially, it was called the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, an agency created by Congress to provide humanitarian relief for the South and shepherd some four million people from slavery to citizenship. It was a new experiment in governing the, the first big federal social welfare agency in American history. In fact, no such agency existed, and that's why it was actually the military that was asked to carry this out after the war. Howard saw the opportunity as heaven sent. Howard embraced the cause of the freed people as the mission that would guide the rest of his life. The Bureau also also helped many millions of white Southerners uh, after the war as well because their currency had become worthless, and it had been for some time, and their economy had been destroyed by the war. With the mission of integrating the former slaves into Southern society and politics uh, the second, during the second phase of Reconstruction era, Howard took charge of labor policy, setting up a system that required freed people to work on former fl- plantation land under pay scales fixed by the Bureau on terms negotiated by the Bureau with white landowners. 
Howard's bureau was primarily responsible for the legal affairs of the freedmen. He attempted to protect freed blacks from hostile conditions, but lacked adequate power and was repeatedly frustrated by the uh, machinations of President uh, Andrew Johnson. Beyond providing basic living supplies, such as food and clothing, the goal of the Bureau was to ensure black people access to land and education. But it was difficult to do in the South, where whites resented the U.S. military occupation. And white legislatures in the former Confederate states passed a series of prohibitive laws known as black codes to halt the political and social advancement of blacks. So in time, Howard uh, became a lightning rod for Reconstruction's enemies, including President Johnson, who attacked the very notion that government should devote itself to liberty and equality for all. Howard soon realized that the government had no capacity to change white Southerners at the time, who were, in essence, still fighting the Civil War. So Howard poured Bureau resources into education instead, which he called the, quote, true, uh, the true relief, unquote, from, quote, beggary and dependence, unquote. When a new institution of higher learning for black men and women was chartered in Washington, D.C. in the spring of 1867, it was almost a given that it would be named after him. So in November of 1866, while head of the Freedmen's Bureau, Howard met with a number of concerned groups in Washington, D.C. to discuss plans for a theological seminary to train black ministers. The result was Howard Normal Theological Institute for Education of Preachers and Teachers, a very complicated name. But on January 8th, uh, 1867, the Board of Trustees voted to change the name of the institution to Howard University. The university included uh, schools of law, theology, medicine, and excluded no one on the basis of race. Howard later reflected that Howard University gave, quote, intelligent youth at the nation's capital, whatever might have been their previous condition, the benefits of a complete collegiate course and a thorough professional training, unquote. Howard served as president for five years. And as president, he threw himself into the work with enthusiasm and raised considerable sums of money for the university. Probably as important, however, was the wise guidance he provided during these early years of the university's existence. He, he actually remained involved with Howard University and an active trustee right up until three years before his death. Howard University today produces more black doctorates than any other university. Alumni include Tony Morrison, Andrew Young, Kamala Harris, and Thur- Thurgood Marshall. Besides creating Howard University, the Freedmen's Bureau helped spawn dozens of college and, colleges and universities throughout the country with the goal of ensuring education that education could never again be denied to a person on the basis of their race or background. In fact, in his autobiography, Howard devoted a chapter to what he called the, quote, institutions of higher grade, unquote, listing all of these colleges and universities, which demonstrated clearly that he believed they were the highest and most prized of his life achievements. Okay, so let's talk about his early life. Oliver Hodes Howard was born on November the 8th, 1830 in Leeds, Maine. He was a New Englander, and most New Englanders at the time were abolitionists. His father died when he was only nine, 
and he grew up being passed around from family member to family member who looked after him. Indications are that he was very well cared for and loved, but I'm sure this, this experience had a profound influence on his life and may explain why he became so religiously fervent. Perhaps he was looking for a solid foundation upon which to base his life. He was a very ambitious young man in everything he did, perhaps even uh, naively so. He graduated from Bowden College in 1850, near the top of his class. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, of course, uh, is also a very well, very well known graduate of Bowden College, and he graduated two years after um, after uh, Howard in 1852. From there, he went on to the Military Academy at West Point, where his abolitionist leanings alienated him from many of his classmates. He, uh, one of the reasons he was alienated was because he, he associated with enlisted men at the base, and he actually led a Bible class, uh, both of which were, were not really very well accepted by the administration or by his fellow cadets. Now, at the time, Robert E. Lee was the commandant of West Point, and he became, uh, Howard became convinced that there was a cabal against him, which was being led by Robert E. Lee's son, Custis Lee. Interestingly, uh, Robert E. Lee must have noticed this because he and his wife actually showed a lot of kindness towards Howard and invited them over to their home quite a few times. Also, during this time, Jeb Stewart, who later, of course, would become the head of Robert E. Lee's cavalry in the Ar- Ar- Army of Northern Virginia, he also befriended Howard and came to his defense with the other cadets. Eventually, uh, his, his uh, relationships with the other cadets must have improved greatly because he went on to uh, have lifelong friends from his graduating class. And he ended up graduating fourth in his class. Not long after that, maybe a couple years later, he married Elizabeth Ann Waite, uh, whose uh, nickname was Lizzie, and they had three children together. Now, in 1856, he was a lonely young soldier stationed in Florida, far from his wife and baby, baby boy named Guy. Seeking comfort, he attended a Methodist prayer meeting and experienced a spiritual awakening. He felt a, quote, new wellspring within me, quote, a joy, a peace, and a trusting spirit, unquote. He felt God had destined him for, for great things. Now, during his time in Florida, an event occurred also in, in, in a church service that had a profound effect on Howard's spirit and on his convictions later in life. During the service in a mainly white congregation, it is said that a black, an old black woman was trying to make her way to the front for an altar call, but was being jeered and physically uh, attacked by the other prisoners as she was walking forward. Howard came to her defense and helped her to the front of the sanctuary, and after this event, he never forgot about the, what, it was, what life was like for black people in the South prior to the war. In 1857, Howard returned to West Point to teach, to teach math, and that's uh, where he was when the war broke out. However, as he settled into this new position at West Point, he grew increasingly restless, and he continued to question his mission in life. He wasn't really sure where he needed to take his life, whether he should continue uh, with the military or if he should join the ministry. Then he viewed the secessionist crisis and the subsequent firing on Fort Sumter and Charleston Harbor as a sign from above that, that he was waiting for. So in the spring of 1861, he telegraphed the governor of Maine, Israel Washington, offering his services. 
in response to President Lincoln's call for volunteers. Word came in the middle of May telling, uh, asking Howard if he would take on a regiment in Kennebec, Maine. Howard was unsure of what to do, so he, went, he consulted with the West Point Commandant at the time, who was John Reynolds. Yes, this is the same John Reynolds who two years later would uh, suggest Cemetery Hill would be a great defensive location uh, just south of Gettysburg. When Howard asked Reynolds whether or not he should accept a commission, he replied, quote, you'll accept it, of course, Howard, unquote. He went on to command the brigade at first Bull Run, and through, though the army was uh, driven from the field in confusion, he was promoted soon after to Brigadier General. He was again at the head of a brigade uh, in the Second Corps in the Battle of Seven Pines when he lost his right arm uh, after being shot in the elbow. He seems to have had another religious experience while he was recuperating from this. His recuperation was short, however, and he was back in command after three months. And part of that time he actually spent back in Maine on a recruiting trip. Now there's a story about Howard uh, right after he lost his right arm that while he was waiting to be evacuated from the battlefield, he received a visit from General Phil Kearney, who had, who had also lost an arm, but he had lost his left arm. General Kearney said, I am sorry for you, but you must not mind it. The ladies will not think less of you. Howard laughed and remarked that at least they could buy gloves together. Sure enough, said Kearney, and they shook hands uh, on that with their remaining hands. Howard would return to the field in time to form the Army's rear guard in 2nd Manassas, which was another big Union loss. Then, at the Battle of Antietam, he became a division commander when he relieved John Sedgwick, who had been wounded. Antietam was a Union victory that was sufficient enough for Lincoln to finally issue his Emancipation Proclamation. Okay, so let's talk about Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. Howard was extremely ambitious and was constantly chafing and lobbying for command of a corps. So during the winter months of 62-63, Howard got his wish and received a promotion to command of the 11th Corps. Now, fighting Joe Hooker, now the commander of the Army of the Potomac, appointed Howard to command the 11th Corps, replacing the widely uh, popular General Franz Siegel. Siegel garnered a strong reputation with the 11th Corps because a significant portion of the Corps was comprised of German immigrants who shared his nationality. Many of these men had fled the German Civil War in 1848 and were not about to be on the wrong side of another civil war in their new country. For the German soldiers, however, the appointment of a so-called Christian general did not sit well. Now, Chancellorsville is perhaps Robert E. Lee's greatest military victory. And it provided yet another massive defeat for the Union. And shortly after the battle, debate ensued over who was at fault. And for many, Howard and his largely German corps, the 11th Corps, were, were to blame. On May the 2nd, 1863, his corps was on the right flank of the Union line, northwest of the crossroads of Chancellorsville. Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson devised, devised an audacious plan in which he would split his army, and Jackson's entire corps of about 28,000 men would march secretly around the Union right flank and attack it. Howard was on that right flank, and his men were not really ready for this attack. 
Now, he had been warned by Hooker and others that his flank was, quote-unquote, up in the air, not anchored by a natural obstacle such as a river, and that Confederate forces might be on the move in that direction. However, Howard thought that the uh, Union, that the Confederates were actually in, in, in a retreat and didn't think that it was necessary to prepare for, this, for any attack. Well, you know, uh, Stonewall Jackson, as we all know, struck just before dark. He smashed and routed the 11th Corps and went so far as even to threaten the entire Union army with destruction. Though the Corps commander displayed personal bravery in attempting to rally his troops, many, including uh, Joseph Hooker, blamed Howard for his so-called Flying Dutchman uh, and his so-called Flying Dutchman for the Union route. Now, just two months later, at the Battle of Gettysburg, the 11th Corps, still smarting from its humiliation of Chancellorsville, arrived on the field in the afternoon of July the 1st, 1863. Again, this corps was poorly positioned. They had really hastily positioned themselves north of town to take on what they didn't really know was coming, but they knew that something was coming. And, uh, and they positioned their corps, in, they positioned part of the corps in such a way that they were, really were not going to be able to take on Ewell's onslaught. Then Confederate Corps uh, Commander Richard Ewell smashed the 11th Corps from the north and caused it to collapse, forcing it to retreat through the streets of Gettysburg, leaving many men behind to be taken prisoner. However, uh, Howard, just before this, had wisely stationed some, one of his divisions on Cemetery Hill as a critical backup defensive line. This proved to be a pivotal decision of the battle and perhaps even the pivotal decision of the entire war because for the remainder of the three-day battle, his corps and really the rest of the army of uh, the Potomac used that position as a defensive position and endured assaults from Lee's entire army on, on July 2nd and July 3rd. And then, of course, he had Pickett's Charge on July 3rd. On, on the Cemetery Hill decision, historian John A. Carpenter holds that uh, Howard alone was wisely sele- had wisely selected Cemetery Hill. It's also suggested that Cemetery Hill was discussed during a meeting that day, or the day before, uh, between Howard and John Reynolds. Now, at the time, John Reynolds, uh, the same John Reynolds who had been his commandant at West Point, was Corps Commander uh, of the First Corps, and he was Howard's immediate superior. Reynolds knew the town of Gettysburg well and may have suggested that Cemetery Hill would be a perfect defensive position. Well, it turned out to be uh, decisive, and of course, the Union Army uh, won their first big uh, victory over Robert E. Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia at Gettysburg. And in January of the next year, Congress passed a resolution recognizing Generals Hooker, Meade, and Howard for their service and in the Gettysburg campaign. With ha- Howard recognized particularly for his service in identifying the importance of Cemetery Hill on the first day of the battle. Okay, so let's talk about the Atlanta campaign. Howard was sent to the Western Theater, and he stayed there for the rest of the war after the Gettysburg uh, campaign. 
He and the 11th Corps were transferred there along with Henry Slocum's 12th Corps to become part of the Army of the Cumberland in, in Tennessee. They were commanded once again by Fighting Joe Hooker. In the battles for Chattanooga, the, the Corps joined the impulsive assault that captured Missionary Ridge and forced the retreat of General Braxton Bragg and the rest of the Confederates really out of, uh, out of Tennessee. Howard had camped in Chattanooga after the battle, and just before leaving with Sherman on the Atlanta campaign, he wrote a, son, he wrote a letter to his son Guy. In this letter, he, he's reminding his young son of the importance of his education because the children of Tennessee did not have access to education. This was evident to him because when processing and paroling the captured rebel soldiers after the Battle of Chattanooga, the, ca- the captives were unable to sign their own names. They would sign with an X, and a Union soldier who was educated would fill in their name. Howard saw illiteracy in the South, particularly in Tennessee, as an avoidable tragedy which, he prof- which had a profound effect on him and played uh, a role in the decision in his decision later on to found Lincoln Memorial University. Education in the South for both freedmen and whites became very important to, to Howard, so much so that he made it the, really the focus of most of his life after the war. In early 1864, the 11th Corps was disbanded, and Howard led the 4th Corps during uh, William T. Sherman's Atlanta campaign. Following the death of James B. McPherson, Sherman selected Christian General uh, Howard to head up the, the Army of Tennessee during a scorched earth campaign through Georgia and the Carolinas. And in the fall of 1864, Sherman's army began its famous march to the sea, cutting a 60-mile-wide swath through Georgia on its way to the Atlantic Ocean. Howard's new assignment was to command the right wing of this march, and Henry Slocum would command the left wing. Throughout the march, the destruction of civilian property greatly concerned Howard, and it proved to be quite difficult for Howard to restrain his men who used the march through Georgia to vent their frustrations at the landed gentry of the South. Through it all, Howard found a new divine purpose in the heroism and daring of the black men and women who crossed the army lines, proclaiming themselves free after lives of slavery. After this, Howard finally received the rank of Brigadier General of the regular army after the capture of Savannah. He went on as wing commander through the march up through uh, South Carolina and North Carolina and up through the end of the war when Joseph E. Johnston's uh, army surrendered to, uh, to Sherman's army. In Charles Flood's book, uh, Grant and Sherman, he described the grand review of Sherman's armies in, in May, that May, in Washington, just after the war was over. He said about uh, Howard, quote, at the sound of the signal gun, Sherman turned up Pennsylvania Avenue on his flower-decked horse. At his side was General O.O. Howard, who had lost his right arm in combat three years before. In a sense, Howard symbolized both the sacrifices of the war and the hopes of the peace for which it had been fought, because just 11 days earlier he had been named to head the Freedmen's Bureau, the new federal agency formed to protect the interests of the former slaves, unquote.
Okay, so now we're going to talk about his experience with the Native American tribes of the West. While still at the Freedmen's Bureau, but winding down its uh, its existence, he was, uh, and while he was still president of Howard University, General Howard was ordered uh, by the president to travel to Arizona to negotiate a peace treaty with the Apache leader Cochise. With help from Tom Jeffords, Howard successfully stopped the violence between the Native Americans and the white settlers and moved the entire Apache nation to a reservation as a result of the treaty signed on October 12, 1872. Later, after Cochise died, the era of Geronimo began. Now, in 1874, William T. Sherman, who was now the general-in-chief of the Army, appointed Howard to head the Department of Columbia in the Northwest Territories, which, was also, which also included Alaska. During this time, he moved his family to Portland, Oregon, where they lived a very pleasant year for about six years, uh, pleasant lives for about six years. However, this appointment would prove to be the most difficult and least gratifying assignment that Howard ever received, but he only realized this years later. In September of 1860, 1876, just months after the slaughter of Custer's army at the Battle of Little Bighorn, Howard was asked to resolve a land dispute between white settlers and the Nez Perce Indians in Oregon and Idaho. Democratic and Republican newspapers agreed that he was uniquely capable of convincing the Indians to move to an Idaho reservation peacefully. This, is a, this situation uh, called on the extreme ambition and desire that Howard had to help others, but it did not serve him well. Howard appealed to the Nez Perce leader known as Chief, Chief Joseph to cede his ancestral territory and move to the re- reservation, but jo- uh, Joseph refused. In May of 1877, Howard demanded that the Nez Perce bands move onto the reservation within the next 30 days, which almost assured bloodshed. On the eve of the deadline, a group of young warriors committed a series of killings targeting settlers along the Salmon River. After the bloodshed started, Howard and his troops pursued 900 or so men, women, and children across Nez Perce country through the northern Rockies and onto the uh, Montana Plains. The Nez Perce bands outran the soldiers for three and a half months, and newspapers ridiculed Howard for not capturing Joseph. It became a slaughter. Settlers along the way gave him a cold reception, and his superiors moved to strip him of his command. Joseph finally did surrender in October of 1877 with the declaration, quote, I will fight no more forever, unquote. This immediately gave, made him a figure of national fascination, a noble warrior who protected women and children and whose pleas for liberty and equality felt deeply patriotic. Nobody liked this outcome. It was an embarrassment to the entire country, especially for Howard, after only doing what he thought was his solemn duty for his country. Okay, so now we'll talk about his later years. In 1881... President Rutherford B. Hayes appointed Howard to superintendent of West Point. This appointment came because West Point uh, had endured a number of scandals, including the hazing and mistreatment of black cadets, uh, which he had been sent there to sort out. He was in this post for only two years, but he did institute a number of reforms that stabilized the situation at the academy. After this, his final command was Uh, of the Department of the East, which encompassed all the states east of the Mississippi River. 
He retired from the uh, United States military or United States Army at the posting of uh, Major General of the Regular Army in 1894. His retirement, uh, in retirement, he briefly found a new calling, leading efforts during the Spanish-American War to evangelize soldiers and sailors and keep them out of the bars and brothels. In the early 1900s, Howard was described by Teddy Roosevelt as, quote, that living veteran of the Civil War whom this country most delights to honor, unquote. During this time, he also wrote children's books, and he wrote a treatise on the role of women in the Great Conflict. I plan to cover some of these women in future podcasts. Now, earlier on a trip to the Cumberland Gap region of Tennessee after the Civil War, not far from where he had spent that time in Chattanooga, Howard was reminded of a discussion he had had with President Lincoln during the war. The president said he hoped someone would do something for the loyal people of East Tennessee after the war. Like many of the mountainous regions of the South, the people of East Tennessee had remained loyal to the Union, even under the severe repression of the Confederates, because the Confederates you know, had, had uh, seceded, uh, the, the state of Tennessee had seceded from the Union and Confederates were were in control. So Howard founded Lincoln Memorial University in the mountains of East Tennessee to honor that second mandate Abraham Lincoln had given him. So on President Lincoln's birthday in 1897, Lincoln Memorial University was chartered as a living memorial to our 16th president. Since its founding, this uh, university has grown from a small liberal arts college to a nationally recognized university. So finally, after a long life of service to his country and all the ups and downs that came with it, on October the 26th, 1909, Oliver Otis Howard died in Burlington, Vermont. He lies buried in Lakeview Cemetery. He was among the last of the top Union generals from the American Civil War to leave this earth. Thanks for listening and tune in for my next podcast in which we will discuss General Patrick Claiborne of the Confederate Army. Goodbye now.